The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. So, scriptural authority, a Catholic doctrine, is the, uh, the topic I've chosen to speak on tonight. And the reason for that is, is very simple. Uh, it's a perennial criticism of modern conservative Protestantism that its doctrine of scripture is an innovation. That is, something that's been thought up relatively late in church history. Either an innovation of certain theologians of the 17th century, if you think of the, the Reformation being a 16th century phenomenon, uh, the period after the Reformation, the 17th century, the period of the great Puritans and the great systematizing of Protestantism is often regarded as, as having been guilty of innovating on the doctrine of Scripture, developing something new, or, as is more often the, the, the criticism uh, today, that uh, the doctrine of Scripture as articulated by Protestant evangelicals is a 19th century innovation. Uh, actually, it didn't occur in the 17th century at all, we're told. The language that's often used to talk about Scripture uh, today, such as inerrancy, is seen really as a 19th century development. Now, there are a couple of comments that one should make uh, right at the start about accusations of innovation. First of all, just because something is an innovation doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. I think it should make us very cautious about adopting something if it's an innovation, if it's new, if the church has not seen it for 2,000 years, the burden of proof, if you like, is on the innovator and not on the church. So the first point to make is the fact that this might be an innovation doesn't necessarily make it wrong. Second point I want to make, though, and this really touches on what is a fairly narrow brief, as I see it, for my lecture tonight, and that is I want to argue that in important respects, in fact, in key respects, the doctrine is not an innovation at all. Now, as I say, that's a fairly narrow brief because in, in saying that, I am not standing up here particularly addressing the question of whether it's right or wrong at this point. What I want to do quite simply is demonstrate that key elements of the doctrine of Scripture, as conservative evangelicals hold them today, go right the way back to the immediate period after the death of the apostles in the late 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 4th centuries. And therefore, whatever else we might be guilty of, if you like, we're not guilty of innovating on this particular point. So, scriptural authority, a Catholic doctrine then. I want to address a, a number of issues as they come up in the early church. I want to reflect on the issue of inscripturation, the actual writing down or the verbal form, the written verbal form of the Word of God. I want to look at early church uh, thinking on inspiration. I want to touch on authority and sufficiency. And I also want to look at what the early church father saw Scripture as teaching. Much of what I do this evening will be me quoting from early church sources so that you know that what I'm telling you is actually there in the text and is not some gloss that I'm putting on the text. 
I want to go back, though, before the early church to reflect momentarily upon the Bible's testimony about itself. And some of this ground has been uh, dealt with by Dr. Garner in the first uh, lecture. First of all, I want you to hold in mind that nothing is more fundamental to God's identity in Scripture than the fact He speaks. If you go right the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what is the first thing we see about God? Even before He creates, if you like, He speaks. Indeed, His speaking is the means by which He creates. So very fundamental to God's identity, to God's character, is that He speaks. And the Old Testament presents a God who communicates consistently and primarily in a verbal manner throughout the Old Testament. We find Old Testament saints of one variety or another speaking to God, having conversations with Him. God talks to them in a language they can understand. Certainly, there are other great redemptive acts that take place. There are great acts of judgment and grace that occur in the Old Testament. But they're always explained, of course, by the Lord providing some linguistic context in which we can understand the parting of the Red Sea. Remember uh, the Passover, Exodus 12. What are the children of Israel told? They're told that after they get into the Promised Land, they should repeat the Passover again and again and again. And it will come to a point where they will have children who don't remember what it's about. And the children will then say to them, Mom, Dad, why do we do what we do? Why do we do this stuff every year at about this time? And the Lord says to the parents, repeat it. Keep repeating it until finally you crack through and they understand what's going on. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, tell them. You tell them about what I did. Use words to explain the action that's taking place here. And that's a nice uh, uh, single example, if you like, of how I think we should understand God's great acts in the Old Testament. Yes, he does these great acts. The ground opens up and swallows the enemies of God. The Red Sea parts and the people pass across. And then God provides words that allow us to fully understand the significance of the action that has taken place. So nothing is more fundamental to God's identity than the fact that he speaks. The Bible itself, of course, also presents God as commanding down the writing of his word at numerous points. Most famous, perhaps, Moses and the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up onto the mountain and the Lord gives him tablets with words written on them. His word is written down. Think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is told, write these things down. Think of the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation when the angel says to him, write these things down. The speaking of God and the writing down of his words are embedded right in the heart of Scripture. And uh, other than the fact that Dave Garner stole my thunder, I was now going to have a little five minutes on 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. But thanks, Dave, you've made me look uh, as if I've prepared less than I really have. Uh, Dave did that uh, Dave did that fairly adequately, I think, so there's no need for me to, to touch on it at this point. We, of course, though, live in the post-apostolic era. How does this sort of feed over into the post-apostolic era? Now, I want you to go back in time. Imagine engage in a sort of little historical thought experiment. Go back in time to around about the end of the first century and you're in your church on a Sunday and somebody rides into town, comes in on a horse, 
jumps off a horse, runs into your church and says, I got urgent news. The Apostle John has just died on the Isle of Patmos. Word is spreading across the Mediterranean that the last of the apostles is dead. It's a new era for the church. Think about it. Think about it for a minute. What church life would probably have been like prior to that moment? Well, you'd got apostles, hadn't you? You'd got men who'd been with Jesus. Or in the case of Paul, they'd been specially visited and encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. But men who are specially invested with authority in the church. And now they've all gone. Things will never be the same again. And it's going to throw up all kinds of questions in the next 50, 100, 200, maybe even down to the present day. All kinds of questions about, well, where does the church look to for authority at this point? How do we address the issues that in the past could have been addressed fairly simply by looking to the men who walked around Galilee with Jesus, who ate with him, who heard him teach, who were specially commissioned by him to spread the word? What you have really from that moment when John dies at the end of the first century onwards is a problem with authority in an acute form. And I'm not going to deal with all of the ways the church addressed that this evening. But essentially there were three ways. There were three things that emerge in the late first and early second century as ways of addressing the problem of authority after the death of the last apostles. And they were reflection on church government who is it who constitutes a legitimate church governor? This hierarchy that is talked about in the New Testament, how do you spot where that hierarchy is now that the apostles have gone? Second issue, the second thing that develops was what we call the rule of faith that I'll just touch on very, very briefly at the end. But essentially, the rule of faith was a summary of the basic elements of Christianity. You find it all over the Mediterranean called the rule of faith or the canon of faith. And the third thing that the church is required to do is to reflect upon the nature of scriptural authority. You have a canon, it's what we call the Old Testament. But what are the new writings? What are the new writings? Where do they fit into the picture? Why should they fit into the picture? What's special about the writings of Paul or the Gospels? So with the death of the last apostle, we enter an era of the church where there is a lot of reflection, or there's going to be a lot of reflection, implicit and explicit, on the nature of authority. And it's in that context that we can start to see comments being made about Scripture that allow us to piece together something of the early church's understanding of Scripture. What I'm going to focus on this evening is a series of quotations from writers from, well we don't know exactly when they lived, but it was somewhere around the turn of the 1st or the 2nd century all the way through to the 6th century and see what kind of things are being said about scripture the evidence uh, also falls into two varieties there's what I would call the explicit statements where somebody is particularly addressing the nature and authority of scripture but I'm going to start by alluding to what I would call are almost throwaway statements or just assumptions when you read the text you can see well they must be assuming certain things are the case in order to hang an argument on something like that so then 
That's the picture. Church, government, rule of faith, scripture. The earliest writers after the, the era of the apostles are called by scholars the apostolic fathers. need to comment about uh, a couple of comments about them before we talk about their kind of writing. One, the term apostolic fathers is a later scholarly construction. There was no group called the apostolic fathers. You know, think about sort of 20th century uh, English literature. You know, there was a Bloomsbury group in the early part of the 20th century. Well, they were self-identifying, like Virginia Woolf, Bertrand Russell. Um, they thought of themselves as part of a particular group. They were self-consciously the Bloomsbury group. The apostolic fathers are not like that. What we have is a whole heap of texts from the first and end of the first and the second centuries. Some of them have names, some of them have no names attached to them. And scholars have just found it convenient to call them the apostolic fathers. They're the ones who are nearly apostles chronologically, but not quite. And there's a, it's an interesting collection, and it grows periodically. Every now and then, another early church writing is discovered and will be added to the collection. What is interesting, oh, and another, another comment before I move on to thinking about their kinds of arguments, the other thing to comment about the apostolic fathers is they're what we might call occasional writings. Those of you who are familiar with something like Louis Burkhoff systematic theology, we don't have a Louis Burkhoff at the end of the first or the second century. Nothing like that was written. What the apostolic fathers did was they wrote occasional stuff. A lot of them are letters, like Paul's letters, written to churches. Some are anonymous accounts of martyrdoms. Others have a sort of form, they look kind of almost liturgical. It's just a rag bag of different genres of writings united solely by the fact that part of the church, first and second century, uh, and secondly, they're connected chronologically. Apostolic Fathers. What's interesting about the Apostolic Fathers? Two things. One, if you read them, you will find again and again arguments are hung on, it is written. Apostolic Fathers will, will say, it is written in such and such a place. And that's an argument. And it's interesting. When somebody thinks that an argument can be clinched by saying, well, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, for example, that tells you something about the status of what they're quoting. The apostolic fathers are continually quoting scripture, and that's all they feel the need to do. It is written, da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. No need for further argumentation. That seems to imply they put a high regard in the text of Scripture. If you're hanging an argument purely on a quotation of Scripture, not saying whether their arguments are always good or bad, but if you're hanging an argument on the text of Scripture, it indicates you have a high opinion of that text. What's even more interesting is not just that they quoting the Old Testament like this, they quote quite a lot of the New Testament as well. And if you sit down with your apostolic fathers and go through and look at all of the New Testament texts that are cited or alluded to, you start to construct something which is not entirely dissimilar to the canon of the New Testament that you now have. Not exactly the same, and it's not formally referred to as a canon, but it's very clear that at the end of the first and the second century, certain books have immediately got status that other books haven't, indicating a high view of the text, and not only of Old Testament books, but also of New Testament books. 
So as I say in my notes here, two things I think can be inferred from the way the apostolic fathers typically argue. One, they assume that God's word is inscripturated. They may not be giving us elaborate arguments as to how it takes place and how to account for all the differences in style, etc., in the works, but they're just assuming that God's word has been inscripturated. Secondly, their authoritative citation of many New Testament books speaks of the functional assumption of some sort of canon, some sort of restricted collection of books. They're not quoting Tacitus. They're not quoting Seneca. They're not quoting Euripides in the same way. They're quoting particular books as being particularly authoritative. Slightly later than the Apostolic Fathers, from around about uh, sometime between 150 and 215, we get this statement from a man called Clement of Alexandria. The Lord, he says, is the source of our teaching. <clears throat> we have him by the gospel and the blessed apostles speaking in different ways and at many times. Clearly an allusion to Hebrews there. Leading from the beginning of knowledge to the end. If anyone thinks that another origin was necessary, it would be impossible to find one. And then listen to this. Whoever believes the scriptures and the voice of the Lord is being faithful. The Bible is the criterion of our knowledge. Now what Dave Garner argued for in the first hour, an identification, if you like, between the words of Scripture and the voice of the Lord, is clearly there in the second century in Clement of Alexandria. And I would say it's a direct line between Clement of Alexandria and the present conservative evangelical understanding of Scripture. We don't express it in precisely the same way. We have nearly two millennia of writing and reflection on the issue that Clement didn't have. But what Clement says there is entirely consistent with what is held by conservative evangelicals today. The point, it seems, of what Clement is saying there is very simple. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And what Scripture speaks, God speaks. Very, very simple. That brings us to the second point. Inspiration. If the authority of the written word is assumed, what about inspiration? There are many of those uh, in recent, uh, well certainly recent centuries, but particularly uh, coming into evangelical circles in the last 30 or 40 years, who've tended to locate inspiration in what the scripture does when it impacts you. Inspiration happens here and now as the scripture is being read or is being preached. The early church, however, made a clear connection between inspiration and inscripturation. This assumption that the New Testament writings and the Old Testament writings was authoritative was not separable for them from the way in which those documents came to be written. Again, <coughs> actually, no, this is a different Clement. This is going back to the Apostolic Fathers. This is first Clement, Clement of Rome about whom we know next to nothing other than his name. First Clement, and if you want to go away and check up the reference to make sure that I'm quoting him correctly, it's First Clement chapter 1, verse 45. Look carefully into the scriptures, he says, which are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. So we have Clement of Alexandria talking about you know, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And here we have Clement of Rome saying something that's, you know, different side of the same coin if you like scripture is the utterance of the Holy Spirit 
Beloved, he says, 1 Clement 1, 53. Beloved, you understand the Holy Scriptures very well. You have looked deeply into the prophecies of God. Using the language of prophecy there. Clearly for Clement, I think, his understanding of Scripture is closely linked to his understanding of what's going on with the prophets of the Old Testament. What's going on with the prophets of the Old Testament? God tells them what to speak or write down and they go away and speak or write it down. Close connection between the Holy Scripture and God. Indeed, some early church fathers take this so far as to stress an almost dictation type approach. You will, among some people, see the accusation lodged that an understanding of inerrancy requires a dictation view of Scripture. It does not. But even if it did, it wouldn't be an innovation because Athenagoras says this in the second century. We have the prophets as witnesses of the things we understand and believe. Men like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah and other prophets declared things about God and the things of God. It would be irrational of us to disbelieve God's spirit and accept mere human opinions instead. For God moved the mouths of the prophets as if they were musical instruments. Now I'm not entirely sure that that's a particularly biblical way of looking at inspiration. But that's not my point at this point. I'm not particularly worried about whether Athenagoras is right or wrong to use that analogy. What I'm saying is that that is a more strict, mechanistic model of inspiration than anything you will find in the 17th or 19th century. And it's there in the 2nd century. So even if the 19th century guys did argue for mechanistic dictation, which they do not, that still would not be an innovation. Because the early church were willing to go that far in order to safeguard what they saw as being the identity between the words of God and the words of Scripture. We get the same thing in Gregory the Great. 6th century. It's often thought of in Protestant circles, a bit of a bad guy, of course, because he was responsible for, well, his, his very clever management of real estate in Italy massively enhanced the wealth of the church and really paved the way for the medieval papacy. That's a different story. Wouldn't quote him with approval so much on that one, but he certainly knew a bit about Scripture, so I'll quote him on that. It is pointless, he says, to ask who wrote the book of Job. Notice that. It is pointless to ask who wrote the book of Job. Is he going to be launching in here to some kind of thing? Well, because Job didn't really exist anyway and it's just a fable. No, that isn't why it's pointless to ask who wrote the book of Job. This is why it's pointless to ask who wrote the book of Job. The Holy Spirit is rightly believed to have been its author. In other words, the one who wrote it is the one who dictated what is to be written. Notice again, statement being made that supposes a very, very close identification between who God is, what he speaks, and what gets written down. To the point where Gregory can say, well, it doesn't matter who wrote the book of Job, humanly speaking, because the human author really doesn't matter. Again, we might not want to go all the way with Gregory on that route, but my point is this, a strict and tight view that connects God to the words of Scripture is not an innovation. It's there in the early church. Same thing underlies the statement from uh, the Muratorian fragment. The Muratorian fragment is one of the earliest, uh, it's a fragment that has a, a listing of New Testament canon books on it. It's very, very important in church history, very, very important in New Testament studies for understanding the development of the canon. Also contains a note on inspiration of Scripture. 
Although different things are taught in the different Gospels, it says, there is no difference with respect to the faith of believers. Why? Because all of them were inspired by the same controlling spirit. Inspiration linked to the writing down of Scripture and connected to God. Inspiration connects the text of Scripture, the being of God, and guarantees that what is written is what God intends. And therefore, the assumption seems to be what Scripture says must be consistent and true. Another quotation from that well-known theologian, Theodoret of Sire. I'm sure his books line the walls of many a young, reformed and restless pastor's library. Some have said that not all the Psalms come from David, but that some are the work of others. I have no opinion either way. What difference does it make to me whether they are all David's or whether some are the compositions of others? When it is clear, and we all know what's coming next, when it is clear that they are all the fruit of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. The divine author is the really important one as far as the early church is concerned. And I would suggest that this, these uh, uh, statements, certainly in their assumptions, point towards the doctrine of inerrancy, as we see outlined in theologians like A.A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield, and as we see wonderfully summarized in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. If any of you are not familiar with the term or confused about exactly what it means, just go home and Google Chicago Statement Biblical Inerrancy, and you'll find there a great document that summarizes in a thoughtful and nuanced way, exactly what inerrancy means. All of those statements that I've quoted so far are not only consistent, I think, with the view in inerrancy, but seem to presuppose it in some ways, or to point towards it, even if they don't use the language. And how could they use the language? They were living in between the, fourth, between the first and the sixth centuries. This brings me to two letters from man called St. Augustine. Augustine, many of you will know, one of the greatest theologians ever in the church. You cannot understand Western Christianity without coming to grips with Augustine. It doesn't matter if you're a Protestant or a Catholic. You can't understand the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism unless you understand the way that the two different traditions responded to Augustine. The Reformation is in some ways a great struggle over which parts of Augustine are to take primacy and how they are to be interpreted. So Augustine, one of the great theologians, you should all read his confessions. You cannot graduate in church history from Westminster without reading the confessions because if I catch you, I will fail you. And you can't graduate if you fail. Augustine says this, he's writing to Jerome. Jerome was uh, a monk in Palestine translated the Bible into Latin, the so-called Vulgate edition of the Bible, that became the, uh, the primary translation in the West right down to the Reformation. The Vulgate was the standard Bible in the West. This is uh, Augustine writing to Jerome, talking about Scripture. And he's talking here about a particular issue. Somebody's raised uh, the issue not a million miles away from the kind of thing that Dave was talking about relative to Kent Sparks. Augustine and Jerome are, are raising the issue of, could it be, could it be that somebody's written something in Scripture that isn't true in order to achieve some kind of better end? That it, it was good to put in an error or to tell a lie 
because that would actually lead to a better end than, than sticking down the truth. It's a bit like Roger Scruton, the philosopher's comment, you know, that comfort from a false hope is not necessarily false comfort. That's the sort of issue that uh, Augustine is addressing here relative to Scripture. Once he says you admit that a false statement has been made out of a sense of duty, we might say out of a sense of goodwill pragmatism, there will not be a single sentence in the entire Bible that will be free of such suspicion if it seems difficult in practice or hard to believe. In such circumstances, it would be all too easy to explain the passage away by saying that the writer deceived his readers out of a sense of duty. It seems to me that Augustine there is anticipating, or better still, simply facing the perennial problem that is now apparently being flagged up as part of the solution in certain quarters. And the point he's making is, look, if we make this concession on one point where we think the guy cut a corner or told a little white lie to get a better result, where does it end? Every time we hit something we don't agree with, we've got a first-rate excuse in our back pocket that we can pull out to get out from under it. Short-term gain, long-term, terrible cost. I've got a note here. I say, you know, the logic could just as easily be applied to unintentional deception or falsehood based on contextual factors. Taking certain aspects of Scripture and saying, well, this person, he wasn't right, but he was so shaped by his context, that was all he could say at the time. Women's ordination, homosexuality. Those are the kind of standard things that are usually come out at this point as, well, that was contextual. Well, that too could be susceptible to the kind of logic that Augustine is concerned about here. He, has a, he writes a second letter to, to, to Jerome, though. And I'm thinking, isn't it great that these men didn't have email? Because this would have been gone. We, we wouldn't have this. I mean, how are you going to reconstruct the private correspondence of Jerome and Augustine if they'd emailed it or tweeted it or tweeted it or whatever? Plus, they couldn't have done it in 150 characters or whatever you're limited to. Uh, Augustine couldn't write anything less than a entire volume on almost any subject. He says this, Letter 82, also going to his friend Jerome in Palestine. Of all the books of the world, I believe that only the authors of Holy Scripture were totally free from error. And if I am puzzled by anything in them that seems to me to go against the truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty, or the translator has not caught sense of what was said, or I have failed to understand it for myself. That's interesting. It's an interesting statement. If Augustine finds a problem, he assumes one of three things. He assumes he might not be understanding it correctly. Not that, well, the Bible must be wrong because I, I just don't understand that text. He assumes that he might be understanding it incorrectly. He assumes he might be dealing with a, full, a, a, a bad translator. Augustine was one of those remarkable theologians in the church who seems to have had very minimal acquaintance with either biblical language, perhaps a bit more with Greek than with Hebrew, and yet was very incisive in terms of his exegesis of Scripture. So he was pretty dependent on good translations. But if he comes across a problem, his first, one of his first instincts is to think, well, I need to check the translation at this point. And the other thing is that he assumes that maybe the manuscript is faulty. Now that's interesting because one of the ways that 
the 19th century are said to really innovate is this. Well, B.B. Warfield and A.A. Hodge, when they write about inerrancy, they have to face the obvious problem that there are problems in Scripture. And one of the ways they deal with that, say discrepancies in numbers or in genealogies, is to say this, well, uh, the problem exists in the manuscripts. It's a copyist's error. Somewhere down the line, somebody miscopied the manuscript. But if we could go way, way back in time, you would find a text that was the pristine text at some point. And that is often picked up on by historians. We say, well, that's an innovation. This argument of these inerrant autographs lying behind it, and our problems actually come from copyist errors, that's an innovation. I think that is an argument made by people who have minimal acquaintance with the history of the church before about 1800. Or maybe we could be generous and say before 1517. Because there it is in Augustine. It clearly says, if there's a problem in the text, one of my assumptions is, it's a problem in the manuscript that I'm dealing with. But that's all that was being said in the 19th century. Here he's saying it at the start of the 5th century in a letter to his friend. Well, time presses on. I don't want to keep you here late on a Friday evening. More importantly, I don't want to keep me here late on a Friday evening. You know, I'm flying home on Thursday to see my mum in Britain. And I will leave at about 6 o'clock in the evening from Philadelphia. And 12 hours later, I will be sitting in my mum's front room having a cup of tea and chatting to my mum. It took me 12 hours to get from Philadelphia to Denver today. And my luggage still isn't here. Uh, I could make an ethnic point. Of course, I'll be flying British Airways on Thursday. I was flying American Airlines today. But uh, uh, who also charged me for my bag, incidentally. But uh, anyway, the bag they've now lost. Um, It's a bit like paying the mill owner for permission to come to work, really. But uh, anyway... Finally, I just want to talk very briefly about the purpose of Scripture. Again, and this is sort of in some ways less to the point perhaps than that section we've just done. But the early church, while they clearly saw God revealed in nature, they also understood that Scripture was important because it went beyond nature in bringing Christ to us. And that was why it was important that the New Testament texts were inspired as well. Because nature and the Old Testament weren't enough in and of themselves. Tertullian says this, second, third century theologian, in order that we might acquire a fuller and more authoritative knowledge, both of himself and of his counsels and will, God has added a written revelation for the benefit of everyone whose heart is set on seeking him, so that by seeking he may find, and by finding believe, and by believing obey. Said there are innovations in in theology, and I certainly think that the, the dramatic dividing between general revelation and scriptural revelation that is such a a big part of the Reformation is not so accented there in the early church. But there is a clear understanding that nature is not enough. We need a written record too. It's Augustine, as usual, who brings these things out perhaps sharpest of all. In debate with a a group called the Manichaeans in the late 4th, 5th century, a group that Augustine himself had been involved with at one time, and perhaps if you're looking for a modern-day equivalent, you know, Scientology might be the, the modern American equivalent of Manichaeanism in the ancient world, a religion based on arcane knowledge, secrecy, uh, ritual, 
Augustine had been a Manichaean and he'd broken from it. But he was at heart for them. It's interesting, you know, reading Augustine against the Manichaeans is a test case in how to do theological polemic because he's very careful in that not to accuse his opponents of doing all kinds of wacko immoral things because he knew they didn't do that. He knew they were upright and respectable people. He focused on their ideas. And it's in that context that he reflects more on scripture. He says this, You have said that Mani, that's the great founder of Manichaeanism, that Mani has taught you the beginning, the middle and the end of the world as well as how and why it was made. But with respect to the course of the sun and the moon and other things you have mentioned, you will not read in the scriptures that the Lord said, I am sending you a comforter who will teach you about the course of the sun and the moon. He wanted to make us Christians, not scientists. Against Felix the Manichaean. What's Augustine saying there? Well, again, another thing that's often lodged at inerrancy is this. You're wanting an inerrant book so you can have some sort of encyclopedia of the whole world. So you produce this kind of enlightenment textbook of everything. It becomes a scientific textbook. Well, Augustine, as we've seen, is an ancient church inerrantist. But he also has a clear understanding that the Bible has limits. It's focused on Jesus Christ and the salvation being brought about by him. It's not attempting to produce a great Manichaean handbook as Mani and his followers had done. Early church writers are also clear that Scripture is to be the norm of church teaching, not an exhaustive norm for everything. Again, another one of the debates is, well, which comes first, tradition or Scripture? Which comes first, church or Scripture? Well, depends what you mean by the question, of course. I think the correct answer to that is to say, well, God's Word comes first, and God's Word is recognized by the church as written down in Scripture. And you find that thought in the earliest apostolic fathers not a privileging of tradition as a way of determining what is scripture but a view of scripture rooted in scripture itself hegemonious says this those who set up some new teaching have a way of twisting the scriptures to make them fit whatever it is they want them to say the apostolic word says, if anyone preaches any gospel to you other than that which you have received, let him be anathema. Therefore a disciple of Christ should accept no new teaching beyond what has once been committed to us by the apostles. He's quoting Galatians there. There's no doubt in my mind that when he's talking about what's being committed to the apostles, he's talking about the written record that the apostles have left behind. Scripture has priority so all I've given you today is probably a do maybe a dozen question, uh, quotations from early church writers the early church writers there's a whole lot of them they debate and disagree on a whole lot of things but I hope what I have done is demonstrate that conservative evangelical doctrine of scripture has precedents that go right back to the earliest point in church history after the death of John the Apostle when that person arrived at your church to make the announcement that John was dead and you immediately went into a panic worrying about well, how are we going to sort this authority situation out? The answer's already there in Scripture. God's had his word written down. And the church will now move through the next few centuries and recognize how that word has been written down in subsequent documents by the apostles, those whom Christ commissioned and delivered this stuff to. And in the context then of understanding how they understood Scripture, 
They understood it to be the words of God. They understood it to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there is evidence to suggest that they assumed it was inerrant and did so on the basis of the first two things being true. It's God's word and it's inspired. 